Hi, before we get into this week's episode, Tisha and I are here. (laughs) We are so excited because we have some new supporters and we wanted to shout them out. We have a page up on Buy Me A Coffee, buymeacoffee.com slash nowwhatpod, where you can buy us a coffee and we love coffee. Don't get us wrong. But what those funds are actually going to are helping us to upgrade our audio equipment so that yes. we can sound a little bit more professional, better recording technology, all the things. It's going to be amazing. Who are those people who've bought us coffees, Tisha? So we have Laura, Paula, and Mark who've each bought us five coffees. Yeah, five coffees each for a total of 15 coffees, which is amazing. We thank you so much for that. We also are slowly building our Patreon community and we have our very first patron subscriber, Nat. So thank you, Nat. Nat, We love you so much. That means that Nat and anyone else who joins Patreon gets access to we have three private episodes up there already and I've actually got some content that I need to edit for more if you have a story or something juicy you want to share but you don't want it for public consumption or you want it anonymous our patreon community is a wonderful place for you to do that so join us and Nat over on our patreon community I hope you love this episode You're listening to Now What, a podcast where we celebrate the human spirit by sharing stories of strength and resilience. For those going through hard times or looking to get inspired to change their own life, we're your hosts, Jen and Tisha. Hi, and welcome back to Now What. I'm Jen. And I'm Tisha. Thank you for joining us again. And thank you for listening. We are going to be talking today with Amy Stockwell, who is a life coach. She is a international best-selling co-author. Yeah, I got that right. Yes, yeah, I did a chapter book. She is a mother of two. She's also a survivor of trauma and love addiction. And that is why we've invited her here on the show to kind of share her story with you today. So welcome, Amy. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And I just have to say, this is so wonderful what you two are doing. And it's so empowering. And I I am just so inspired and honored to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you being willing to come and talk to us. I know love addiction is not really something that I know I'm going to admit to knowing anything about. And I'd venture, I guess, many of our listeners don't either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's very common, you know, once you get into a meeting and go, oh, there's a meeting today, there's a meeting today. But when you don't know, um, that's what you're rolling with. It's not very common. I don't think it's something that gets discussed a lot because we often think of addictions as addicted to substances, to things, right. but love, depending on people, relationships we don't often think of addiction in that way but it's very real and yeah it's um there's worldwide worldwide groups i'm a member a grateful member of sex and love addicts anonymous and uh i really found uh, a lot of healing there and a lot of uh sanity so would you be open to telling us a little bit about your life before finding that absolutely so um like i said i am a survivor of trauma my trauma was uh, when I was five, I was sexually molested by my father. And um, we had come to learn that it, um, my three other sisters had been uh, sexually abused by him as well. So the trauma started there. And um, I would have been about five years old. So um, on top of that, uh, domestic violence was a part of my upbringing. So um, you know, having two parents that were not very um, mentally fit to take on uh, the task at hand resulted in growing up in trauma. So those early experiences really came with me for a great part of my life. I'm 39 this year, and I really feel like I have a grasp on um, my, uh, my healing, on my recovery and uh, but it took a long time to get there because uh, as, as a result of um, those experiences, um, we were my sister and I. I've got two older sisters, but there's a good 18 year gap. So oh wow, oh, wow, okay. yeah, yeah. My mom and dad were got together in um, they would have got together in the 60s, and um, my mom was just uh, you know she was uh, she was very naive emotionally. 
um, I would say very emotionally stunted. Um, I would say too, that possibly looking back, like, you know, having traces of love addiction for sure. My father was a stressed out lawyer and, um, or he was becoming a stressed out lawyer. They met in university. So mm -hmm. this was before all the, the chaos and stuff. So um, they met each other. And I think just the two of them were just bonded together to, uh, to survive. So anyway, long story short, um, they had uh, the older two in the 60s, and then they had my sister and I in the 80s. So um, all together, four children. So in about when I was about eight, eight or nine years old, we had the Children's Aid Society come in and remove us from the home. The, uh, they, wow. the school had, yeah, it was, it was something where, you know, I think the, the difficulties when you grow up in domestic violence and you grow up in trauma, it's just, it's the norm that, oh, okay, well, they're having another domestic and, you know, that would be the norm. It'd be a, a weekend, mom and dad would have a domestic and then there would be police in the house. And then the next morning you're sitting around the kitchen table eating breakfast before we're going to church because dad's speaking at church today. So, mm -hmm. and, but that's all you knew. Exactly. That was just, we don't talk about it. There's stuff going on, but we don't talk about it. So yeah, it, um, it, it shapes a lot of the way you uh, come at life. So when I became a teenager, you know, so going back, we had been removed um, from the home by children's aid society um, the abuse became aware at the school level and thank God for schools. Um, they seem to be the access point and point of contact when something like this is happening in the home. So the children's aid removed us. We went to a shelter and that's where my um, self-esteem, um, any sense of hope that I had just really plummeted because I felt worthless. I felt uh, unlovable. I felt like damaged goods, like I was trash. Uh, we're in a shelter and why would I want to go play on the volleyball team? Because all those kids are going home to happy, loving families. And I'm going home to a shelter where I'm sleeping in a room with, in a bunk bed with my sister and my mom in one small room. I can't mm -hmm. have people over after school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So it kind of stunted those kind of social relationships in a way too, because you weren't able to have kids over after school. Yeah. And it's just, I don't want to, and I didn't want just the shame of, mm -hmm. you know, I always knew I was an athletic kid. I always wanted to do athletics, but I just didn't have the opportunity to. So what I did instead to deal with my need to release, um, tension or just to, to be active was I, uh, when I was 13, I started getting in trouble with the law. I would be vandalizing. Um, I would be doing mischievous things, um, with my, my friends and we formed a bond because the they were troubled teens as well so mm -hmm. I thought well perfect they'll accept me they're not going to judge me but like so when we go over to someone's house and their mom's passed out drunk well that's that's fine you know no one's that's their judge normal me. yeah exactly yeah. yeah yeah so we would uh go out and do uh deviant deviant things I mean I I would get into vandalizing I would do break and enters I would steal my mom's car to go with friends and do break and enters just during the school day. Um, I would steal cars and joyride with my friends. And it was just very high risk taking behavior as a result mm -hmm. of trauma. And eventually that, <laughs> that curtailed, thank God, you know, <laughs> it yeah. was, yeah, it, uh, my mom was saying, you know, Amy, you know, that the police in this town know me by name or know you by name and they know me, <laughs> but I was just, you know, I, I, my mother was an overly stressed out woman that again, when we lost my dad, we lost the discipline and we lost the um, consistency that he provided, but at such a high cost of violence and, and trauma. But that's the mm -hmm. one thing he did do was he held the house together. And then when he was like, when we were removed, we lost that. So we had my mother who was probably the emotional age of a teenager trying to raise two teenagers herself. And then more chaos came out of that. There were times that I would raise my mother. I would parent her. I would get my sister and I to school. And, and that's the result of trauma. You have to grow up fast. You have to adapt. You have to survive. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's something you sometimes commonly see in families where there's trauma is that there is a one of the children who kind of ends up taking on some of those parenting roles and taking on those responsibilities out of necessity. Yeah, it's survival. And that's, you know, 
so what I would do to blow off steam from, from not being able to process my feelings, not being able to, um, get angry, not, not having anyone that, that, um, I could go to my, my older sister, God bless her, uh, the one, so I'm the youngest in the family and she's the oldest. And between us, there's 18 years. She, I think if I have her, I don't know. I think I've might've gotten more trouble, but there would be some nights where all I could do was just run to the payphone, uh, do a collect call and just leave a message asking her to please take me away. And she was in BC at the time and couldn't take me away. But just knowing that there was someone on the other end of the phone, because when I went home, I was so um, alone emotionally. Um, my mother would be there. And sometimes, you know, she was in a good spot where she could show love to, you know, she wasn't a bad person. And she was just doing the best she could with what she knew. And what she knew was that she was very traumatized, too. And uh, the family unit, we didn't we didn't do any real healing. So it, it continued to uh, to go. So what I did is when I started dating, um, when I was about um, 13, I would, you know, fool around with guys and that type of thing. And that was part of the higher risk taking behavior. And when I was 15, I um, had a wonderful high school boyfriend, he was my rock. And I just, you know, I look back at those times. And I thank Chris for, for just being there and being consistent for me. And, um, but I was so attached to him, so desperately clinging to him just to be my reassurance, to be my everything, because I would just be going home to loneliness and emptiness. And mom was there, but she wasn't really emotionally there. And mm-hmm. you felt like you had nothing else. Yeah, exactly. And so it became the beginning of uh, the love addiction of becoming um, clingy to men. And then when Chris and I broke up, um, around the last year of high school in grade 12, um, that's when maybe more of the sex addiction part started coming up because I really found it exhilarating and exciting to, um, you know, get with guys on the weekend or to, to fool around and that type of thing. It was, it was like a high, it was, and it made me feel good about myself. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, Gabor Matei, uh, when he talks about addiction, he talks about how, anything can be addictive because what it's doing is it's giving you short term relief, but the dilemma is the long-term consequences of it are so negative. So in the moment, feeling like I could go into a a bar and in my twenties too, go into a bar and okay, that's the person I'm going to hit on. And then I got it. I got my fix. I got it. And it was exhilarating. It was like a high, Mm -hmm. but then the next morning, you know, it's like, we all joke about the the walk of shame, you know, the next morning yeah. you're doing that and you're going home to, uh, being alone again. You're going home to being, um, empty and unfulfilled and alone. And now what am I going to do to, uh, to take care of myself? Right. Mm-hmm. Get the next hit next weekend. Okay. So the next weekend I'll, I'll go out, I'll binge, I'll get high, you know, and, um, that, beca- that became a pattern too. And then ultimately, um, I met, um, another, uh, long-term boyfriend. So it's kind of like, you know, binging a little bit on like the, the sex addiction part of it, mm-hmm. but then also binging on the love addiction part of it. So, right. you know, mm-hmm. so then you got another long-term boyfriend and did you fall into that kind of clingy behavior again? Oh, hundred percent. And so what I was doing at the time too, was I found my, uh, therapist who's now my mentor, Carol, and she has been with me since I was 20 and I'm 39 this year. So that's 19 years wow. of, you know, sometimes I'd go to her, she'd call me all my stuff and, you know, Amy, you're being codependent. And I'd be like, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And then, so I, you know, date this guy and I would be, you know, dating this person for a couple of years and then it would get bad. And then I would go to her and go away and that type of thing. But what I found was, yes, the clinginess was there. It was. Um, it was the wounded little girl that just wanted to be loved and didn't know how to love herself. So now I'm relying on you to fill all those holes in me. I'm wondering about like the clingy, like you described yourself as clingy in relationships. Could you describe that a little bit more? Like, yep. What is that like? Yeah. So it's a survival behavior. Mm-hmm. And it's a survival behavior for, for me from uh, trauma. 
So I did, uh, I remember, I've always said, you know, we, we love how we were shown to, and I was not shown how to love properly. Right. So mm-hmm. the only thing I knew was to hang on to people really tight and don't ever let me go. And I wouldn't be able to evaluate, is this good for me? Is this what I need? It was, you're here. I need you. You make me feel good. Um, and I'm not alone anymore. So please don't leave me. And it would, it's almost like, I think they, um, there's in the mental health field, there's like borderline personality disorder. There's, Mm -hmm. um, all those kinds of uh, different personality disorders. And I think in one of them, they were saying the pattern is I love you. I hate you. Don't leave me. So I Mm -hmm. love you. I want to get close to you, but I'm terrified to get close to you because the last time I got close to people in my childhood, they horribly took advantage of me. They left me, they neglected me. The list goes on. So it taught me, don't get too close to people because they're just going to hurt you. So the clinginess was, I got to make sure you're not going to hurt me. I got to be on top of you. I got to make sure you're not going to hurt me. I got to make sure I know where you are, what you're doing. And it was crazy making to make sure that I could still like my drug is just, I just need to know my drug's going to be there. And then I can go to work and I can function is what it's like. Right. Yeah. So were you jealous? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. I was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I make the joke. So I had three significant um, relationships. uh, Well, four if you count um, Chris from high school. But in my adult life, Mm -hmm. um, after 20, I had three significant um, relationships. And so, and all of them too, wonderful men. Every, you know, everybody's gone through their stuff, but we're all doing the best we can with what we got. But um, the one saying that I heard before that really helped me was hurt people, hurt people. But I was like, well, I don't hurt people. They're hurting me. I'm the victim here. And it took me a while to realize, no, 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 Amy, you're actually very jealous. You're actually, you're really like, you know, thank God I'm on great terms with my ex-husband because there was a time that I was incredibly mean to him and I couldn't see that. And that Mm -hmm. comes from the hurt people, hurt people. And what I was getting at with the, the, the relationships is that I can um, picture that the three of them are standing around this like coffee urn in a church and they're part of the uh, group. I survived Amy anonymous and they're all <laughs> hugging each other, sharing their war stories of what it was like to date me and even be married to me. Yeah. <laughs> But that was the love addiction that I didn't know. So it would be like, if you liken it to living with an alcoholic and you're just like, what what is going on with this person? And then, well, when they drink, I can see that, oh, they're drinking. Of course, they're, they're, they're acting erratically. They're mean, they're drunk. But with like love addiction, we can't, we can't see that. We can't see Mm -hmm. when somebody has been triggered and is just going off on a tangent. It's much more nebulous, you know, like it's, it's invisible. Yep. And so it's hard to see. And, uh, and so it's hard to, to comprehend. And what I do have here is I have a little sheet that has the characteristics of love addiction. If, um, if you want me to. Oh yeah. I was going to, I was going to, well, I I also want to know, um, what like made you realize what was going on or see this in yourself. So maybe that could be an interesting transition there. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So I, um, I was just really tired of feeling sad and tired. I would go to Carol, uh, my therapist, and she would call me all my stuff. She'd say, Amy, you're codependent. Amy, you're, you're, you're a wounded little girl. You need to work on your inner child. And I would start to do the work, but then it would get too tough. It would get too scary the feelings were overwhelming. I didn't know how to process feelings. And even though she was there to help me, it was like, I just, I can't look at this right now. And uh, let's go find a man and uh, okay, see you later. And then it would ultimately fall apart. I would come back to her office. I think all the relationships I've had, every guy meet her and go in for a counseling session with her too. (laughs) God love these wonderful men. Um, Because I was like, I don't know how to trust myself. I don't know how to love myself. I think I do sometimes, but I don't commit to my recovery. I don't commit to, okay, I got to work on my inner child. Okay. I got to feel my feelings. I was like, I'll do that for a little bit, but then, um, oh, it's getting too scary. It's getting too painful and I'm going to stop and I'm going to run. Yeah. And there's this thing over here that I know makes me feel better. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like the sex or the love, like that's your drug. Yeah. 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 And that, that 
validation that um, getting my esteem needs met. So when I do um, coaching sessions, we talk about um, Carol taught me the 12 needs of a child. And that is so huge because it involves things like we needed to be validated. We needed to be loved for who we are. We needed to be accepted for who we are. We needed to know we could fail, make mistakes, change my mind. Those little yeah. things add up to so much self-esteem. So yes. it was me learning how to reparent myself, but I was just, I didn't know how to give those to me. And the easier way is if they just did it for me, they could just validate me. If I could just, you know, um, use my charm and my sexual prowess to uh, just get validated, then yeah, cool. That's good. You know, and then I'll go home. I'll, you know, chain smoke over the weekend and um, not eat and let my life run into the ground, but I'll get back up on Monday, like a weekend warrior I am and show up for work. And if I was working, because a lot of the time too, I was constantly running for myself. I've moved, I've conquered Southern Ontario. I've probably moved, I'd say 16 or more times in my childhood. And if you counted my adult life, it would be over 20. So that was running. I'll just move here and that will make it better. I'll just move here and that will make it better. I'll just get this job and this will make it better. I never stayed consistent with anything. And I was constantly running for myself and thinking, why am I crazy? Why am I, why do I feel like I'm going crazy? Because that is crazy to live like that and to think that you can have a fulfilling life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So did you have a moment, like, um, when did you first go to your, when did you go to your first meeting? meeting? For sex and love addicts or for yes. therapy? Sex and love, sex and love addicts. addicts. Oh, yes. Okay. So I hit rock bottom in February, 2020. Um, my uh, ex and I had uh, moved in together. Again, it was a very codependent relationship. And it was one of those, if you're not going to commit to me, then I'm going to leave. Because with sex and love addiction and, and codependency too, it's often very dramatic. It's, you know, the, the rational person would say, we don't have what it takes to form a committed relationship. So let's just, let's just call it a day. We gave it our all. Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh no, no, no. This is a need. I want met. I want it from you. I want it like this. I want it now we're moving in. And if not, I can't be with you. So <laughs> we moved in together and in about a month it all fell apart. So February, 2020, I hit rock bottom. Uh, still didn't get myself to um, sex and love addicts anonymous because when you're, in victim mode, everybody else is hurting you. It's my parents. It's, it's my, my ex who wouldn't go to therapy with me. It's, um, that person who wouldn't change for me and, and me. And at one point I remember Carol saying, Amy, who are you to tell somebody that they need to change and how to do it? And I'm like, ah, oh, what, what, what do you mean? They're impacting me, Carol. I, I should be telling them how they're hurting me. I was so flabbergasted at that. That's how mm -hmm. addicted I was and how into my addiction I was. So um, again, I was like, here I go again. I had done this with the previous ex, moved in, it didn't work out. And here I am putting my kids through the same, same childhood experiences that I went through. Um, households are breaking down um, and we're moving again and there's no consistency. And I thought to myself, you know, I had some clarity after my ex-husband and I split up. I had gone and done some work on myself therapy wise but I didn't know I was still rolling with a love addiction. So that was part of the problem. So then we fast forward to February, 2020, after a couple of relationships that didn't work, this one was the one that was like, Amy, he, it just that pattern just happened again with a different person. And what's the con common denominator in all this? You. So, mm -hmm. you know, going to Carol and going to that, uh, doing therapy. And then um, a year ago, um, just around this time a year ago, I um, ran into my ex's uh, sister and uh, brother-in-law in, -law in uh, a, a grocery store. And they were like, oh, it's good to see you. They were always very loving and caring to me. And they're like, yeah, we're just on our way to family dinner. And that was the trigger. I'm like, oh, they're going to family dinner. I'm alone. Nobody loves me. I have no family. My family's dysfunctional. I'm a piece of crap. I'm worthless. Nothing is ever going to happen good in my life. I'm always going to be alone. And that's the addict. So there, there comes out the addict, unbeknownst to me. So what I did was I called up... Um, a, a friend of mine, a contact and, um, had, uh, you know, got together like I did, like we call it in program acting out. Mm -hmm. So, uh, acted out. Um, and then, um, 
that was on Thanksgiving weekend. So I was on my way over to my uh, best friend. She's like, she's been a childhood friend of mine. She's uh, she's an aunt to my children and I'm an aunt to her kids. So I'm on my way after this rendezvous to Thanksgiving dinner. And I look like I just like, I was just frantic and frazzled. It would be like if I just did a line of Coke and now I'm going to go to Thanksgiving dinner and they're going, yeah, what's going on with you? Yeah. <laughs> and I said to my, my, and then my, my kids are getting um, dropped off by their dad at her house. And so my kids are there and I'm coming off of a high of acting out and I'm like, I got a problem. Holy cow. And so from going to Codependence Anonymous, um, I met some friends uh, there through a program. These 12 step groups are wonderful. I, I can't say enough about them and how great they are. So a gal pal of mine was like, um, a couple of weeks ago, she was like, I, I go, I'm going to go to sex and love addicts anonymous. And I'm like, no, oh, good for you. Yeah, you do that. She's like, did you want to come? I'm like, no, nope, that does not apply to me. So, um, you know, have fun. Uh, and I, I, I'm here for you. I'll see you when you come back to codependence anonymous. Mm-hmm. So that night I called her and I said, what's the, what's the sex and love addicts anonymous? What's how, like, you seem to be doing good. I can't figure my life out. And I'm just really tired of acting out. I'm really tired of being alone. I'm really tired of being objectified and submitting myself to this suffering over and over. And she's like, yeah, here's the link for a meeting. And just by going to meetings, I was able to connect with other people and find the right meeting for me and find a sponsor and just really take a hard look at myself. And it's been really cathartic and healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, It sounds like it. Um, You had offered before to share some information sort of the characteristics of a love addict i'm wondering if you would share those with us yes and um and it doesn't it's not a diagnosis it doesn't mean you're a love addict um it just means that when i read it i was like oh i'm in the right place (laughs) right so so these are the characteristics of sex and love addicts um from sex and love addicts anonymous so number one having few healthy boundaries we become sexually involved with and or emotionally attached to people without knowing them number two fearing abandonment and loneliness we stay in and return to painful destructive relationships concealing our dependency needs from ourselves and others growing more isolated and alienated from friends and loved ones ourselves and god number three Fearing emotional and or sexual deprivation, we compulsively pursue and involve ourselves in one relationship after another, sometimes having more than one sexual or emotional liaison at a time. Four, we confuse love with neediness, physical and sexual attraction, pity, and or the need to rescue or be rescued. Five, we feel empty and incomplete when we are alone. Even though we fear intimacy and commitment, we continually search for relationships and sexual contacts. Six, we sexualize stress, guilt, loneliness, anger, shame, fear, and envy. We use sex or emotional dependence as substitutes for nurturing care and support. Seven, we use sex and emotional involvement to manipulate and control others. Eight, we become immobilized or seriously distracted by romantic or sexual obsessions or fantasies. Nine, We avoid responsibility for ourselves by attaching ourselves to people who are emotionally unavailable. 10. We stay enslaved to emotional dependency, romantic intrigue, or compulsive sexual activities. 11. To avoid feeling vulnerable, we may retreat from all intimate involvement, mistaking sexual and emotional anorexia for recovery. And 12. We assign magical qualities to others. We idealize and pursue them then blame them for not fulfilling our fantasies and expectations. <laughs> check, 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 check. <laughs> I was just going to say, so you saw this listening and were like, I'm basically, I was most, like, most of those things you felt resonated with you. hundred percent. And with love addiction and, and also sex addiction too, but mainly with love addiction, the one where we avoid taking responsibility for our lives by attaching ourselves to, um, where am I here? We avoid responsibility for ourselves by attaching ourselves to people who are emotionally unavailable. That was my drug. That was the love addiction. I'm just going to make you 
I'm going to make you available. I'm going to make you emotionally available. And I'm just going to make that my focus. I'm going to obsess about it. I'm going to fantasize about it. I'm going to, I would, I remember one time being so um, obsessed and so focused on, um, on making sure my partners were going to be my version of what I wanted them to be. Um, I would, I would get so stressed out. So um, one time I was in the hospital with chest pains and, um, you know, telling the person I was with that I'm in the hospital, I'm having these chest pains. I don't know if I'm having a heart attack. Oh my gosh. And that was me being like, be here for me. Love me. Please love me. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. I'm in pain. I'm in pain. Solve my pain. Fix me, fix me, fix me. And then uh, the doctor was like, hey, I, I think you're depressed. And I was like, what? No, I'm not depressed. I'm not in bed all day. I'm just having chest pains. But I allowed my physical health to get so deteriorated. I remember one time I was in university and I was just, you know, again, it would be like when you're in addiction, when you're high, when you're, or just when your life is so unmanageable. So I'm like just trying to be there for the kids. I'm just, I've run my health down. I'm chain smoking and drinking coffee. That's all I can do because the anxiety is just, I can't handle the anxiety. So, okay, what I'll do is I'll chain smoke and I'll drink coffee. And then, um, and then I'm like running to class, like with bags under my eyes. I can't remember anything because I'm so stressed out. Um, thyroid issues were in my family. So I had um, become uh, hypo, um, hypothyroidism. So at mm -hmm. one point, I remember my health getting so low because I just was so in my addiction that in the middle of the night, I woke up and I convulsed. And I really believe my heart stopped. And I was like, holy crap. I'm dying for love, literally. And at the time, I didn't know it. I just thought, I'm just, this is just what you do. This is just what's happening. But looking back now, um, mm -hmm. I like convulsed a bit, like someone went clear and I just woke up and like, so my heart must have stopped and skipped a beat and just came back to, and I thought, holy cow, Amy. So yeah, yeah. there's some pretty rock bottom moments. And when you read just what we're willing to do for love, when if we just put it on ourselves and do the, do the work, but it's not as easy, right? If we could just put down the alcohol, if we could just put down the line of coke, if we could just not go into the casino, but it's not that easy. Right. Yeah. And this is what I was thinking about in terms of like recovery. So when we think about um, alcoholism, for example, um, the solution is to not drink anymore. And of course, I know that there's other work that goes into that when you're in a 12-step program, but you abstain from that. Yeah. And um, typically for the I, rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Thinking in terms of like sex and love addiction, the goal is, well, maybe you should tell me what the goal is, but yeah. I think that the goal is probably to have a healthy loving relationships and sexual partners like within a healthy committed relationship yes. am I wrong nope um <laughs> that's yeah that's what we're striving for so we're striving for um learning to love um from our 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 recovery so what what it would look like for me is I have bottom lines so um an alcoholic would be like I, I if I drink um, then I am, uh, my, I, I have broken my sobriety. So in sex mm -hmm. and love addicts, um, anonymous, we have bottom lines. So the people's bottom lines might be, um, no pornography, um, no, um, no sex, unless I'm in a committed relationship, um, no acting out with my qualifier. So a qualifier is typically the person that, um, you maybe acted out with, or who was the person that, um, is the one that triggers you. So like I could say my ex or I could say my qualifier that qualified me to be a part of sex and love addicts anonymous. Okay. Okay. So some people's bottom lines might be, um, you know, we have dating plans in sex and love addicts anonymous. And if you have a sponsor, it's almost like having like a dating plan buddy to, uh, to help you out with that, to be accountable because when we're left to our own devices, uh, the addict in us comes out and that's the, that's the, well, you know what, like, I'm fine. I can, you know, I can watch this pornography and it's not going to bother me. Or I can just, I can have this casual sexual liaison and I'm fine. 
you know, I can have one beer. I'm not going to, I'm not going to become a full fledged alcoholic again. Some people can't have that one beer. Some people can't, um, watch the pornography. Some people can't, um, have, uh, casual sexual liaisons anymore. And it just depends, right. Or, um, mm -hmm. it depends what, what, what for you is your bottom line. And for me, it, it involves behaviors that I lose myself and I lose responsibility for myself. When I end up depressed in bed, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to be depressed in bed again. I don't want to, um, have to start all over again because, um, I moved in with someone and now I'm back at my mom's house. I was like a boomerang and thank God for my mother, um, because she would let it, let me come back. So for me, it would be whatever, um, would, would, make it so that I would lose myself to my addiction. Um, I, I keep as my, uh, bottom lines. And so my recovery would look like I'm loving myself. I'm taking responsibility for myself. I'm not running to a man to rescue me. Um, I'd like to have a relationship, but I don't need it. I don't need it to heal me, fix me. I don't need them to rescue me. And I'm also aware of the people I attract because even early, like I, I just, I'm coming on a year of sobriety. And, um, even in my early days of sobriety, I would say to my sponsor, I'm like, yeah, I'm ready to date. I got this. Yeah, no, I'm feeling good. I I'm ready to walk back into the bar and not be tempted to drink. I am fine. And then the people I would attract, I'm like, Oh my God. Wow. Okay. No, I'm not. Then I go back <laughs> to my sponsor. <laughs> so, you know, it'd be like attracting people that, um, that, oh, there, there's those patterns coming up again. Oh, okay. And, you know, being able to catch that and um, say no to myself. And my mother, you know, God love her. She has these amazing sayings and I go to her for wisdom too. We've really healed our relationship over the years. And she would say, Amy, the hardest thing you're ever going to have to learn is to say no to yourself. Like, yeah. Mom, that sucks. Say no to myself? What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And it is, it's hard. And like, you know, we can even think of retail therapy, you know, that's an mm -hmm. instant gratifier. So to yeah. say no to myself, what could I be doing instead? And then another thing mom would always say is, is that the best possible use of your time? Like, <laughs> yeah, check your motivation, Amy. Is it, you know, is it coming <laughs> from a good place? Is that, is that the best possible use of your time? Like, oh, I think everybody needs her like sitting on their shoulder. I think. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think one of the things that makes it, I don't know, maybe less recognized or less understood to people is that there isn't a clear cut way to sobriety, like with drinking or drugging or gambling, like you just can't do those things. Right. Like, I, I can't imagine telling like a whole corner of society, no, you can't ever have a relationship again. Right. And that would just be so unrealistic. And like one of yeah. the characteristics is we think, oh yeah, no, I'm recovering. I'm just not having a relationship. I'm just not interested in people. But what we're doing is we're actually being um, uh, emotionally and sexually anorexic, more, more emotionally anorexic, where it's like, I'm just not going to date anyone. I'm just going to focus on me. I'm going to focus on me, focus on me. But it's like, but we, you know, we need to learn how to have healthy love. So we're not going to go yeah. full out, you know, and, and, the typical, like there's a lot of codependency in love addiction too, where yeah. it, to take it slow feels so unnatural for the love addict. Taking things slow, that feels so unnatural. Sharing what I truly feel with someone and being vulnerable, that's way too risky. So then we often return to these painful and destructive relationships right. and they're what we know, they're comfortable. It's again, my mom would say, Amy, it's a crap heap, but it's warm and familiar. <laughs> and, uh, and that's and that's what it was. I could predict it. I could control it. I knew what was going to happen over here in healthy love. I don't know what's going to happen. People might break up with me. People might leave me. People might tell me that I'm not what they need. But if I work on my recovery enough, that's not going to put me in bed in like a, a depression again. I right. I'm learning that I am lovable. I am enough. And it's the years of, mm -hmm. of therapy on top of that too. And with, with the alcohol, yes, it's like, I need to stop drinking, but also that that's just being sober. So when I, right. my, my therapist is a, a recovered alcoholic too, of, I think she's got over 30 years. And she was like, Amy, when I stopped drinking, I was sober. I wasn't drinking. I was sober from alcohol. She's like, 
but I wasn't living sobriety. And so what I had to do to live sobriety is I had to learn to love myself. I had to reparent myself. I had to give myself all those things that I couldn't get. Mm -hmm. That was living sobriety. So that's how, yeah. So I can be sober and I'm not um, acting out on my bottom lines, but I need to live sobriety and I need to love and relate to others in this healthy way that for a lot of us love addicts is incredibly uncomfortable and very risky. Mm -hmm. Because you could imagine that somebody who's tired of being a sex and love addict and it's also sort of protectionist because if I don't engage in these behaviors anymore, if I don't connect with other people, if I'm not vulnerable, then I'm protecting myself. Yeah. And so you could just, you could just shut down and, and consider that, you know, your, your sobriety. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not engaging in relationships. I'm not engaging with in sexual activity with people. I don't know that type of thing, but you're also depriving yourself of human connection, which I think on, like, I don't think we need as people. Yeah. We need to have those connections. Well, I mean, I feel like if there's ever been time to really reinforce that it's been the last year and a half. Oh, a hundred percent. And it just shows that real joy comes from relationships you know, it's, um, when I'm making a pie in the kitchen on Saturday, that's fun. But the joy of it is to see the kid's aunt's face when I bring it to her house and we all get to share it. That's the joy it's in giving and giving that we receive, you know, or the joy of, you know, leaving a little note for my daughter in the morning. And cause I know that's her love language and just seeing, you know, how, how it, it just brightens her day and giving that love. But in addiction, it's get, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. I need to get it. I need to get it. I need to get it. But in recovery, it's, I love myself. I have, there is so much love to give, but I have boundaries and I have boundaries where when something is hurting me, I'm aware of it now. And I don't keep trying to get the short-term relief from it. I see that it's hurting me and I now have the strength and the courage to walk away from it. Mm-hmm. Right. So did, did you, or would you say that you stayed in relationships where your boundaries were, were being violated just for that safety and for that 100%. love? Yep. And, and it goes right back to, um, characteristic number two, fearing abandonment. So fearing that I'm going to be alone, this person's not going to choose me. This person's going to cheat on me. This person is not prioritizing my needs. So that means they're going to, they're going to reject me. And I'm going to be alone. So fear and abandonment and loneliness, we stay in and return to painful, destructive relationships. And we conceal our own dependency needs from ourselves. And it actually isolates us. So this is where if we looked at women in abusive relationships, I would definitely say there's some love addiction going on there. Um, You know, I I don't go around diagnosing people, but I would definitely say that in, in a lot of these abusive relationships, there is a love addiction. It's why can't you just leave? And it's, if it were that easy, but there's so much more to it. So it's, I don't Mm -hmm. want to be alone. I don't want to be lonely. I was terrified to take responsibility for myself as an adult woman. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know. And then there would be sometimes it's like, this is too hard. This, this adulting thing, this single mom thing, it's too hard. I'm a victim here. Does nobody see that I'm a victim? Somebody please come and save me from the burdens of how hard it is to be me. And Carol Mm -hmm. was like, Amy, you're not the only single mother that struggles. And it's just this self-righteous, self-centered entitlement. That's addiction. If you talk to family members of alcoholics, they'll probably talk about how self-righteous, self-centered and borderline narcissistic uh, the alcoholic is because it's Mm -hmm. all about getting my needs met. I need my needs met. And it comes off as incredibly self-righteous and selfish that we, uh, when we get called on it. (laughs) Yes. What? (laughs) Me? Yeah, no, everybody's hurting me. My parents, my parents are hurting me and they still hurt me because my parents never did therapy and my parents should have been the people I needed. And I'm, I'm damaged goods because of them. Don't you know? And it's like, (laughs) Carol was like, okay. And in the adult state of mind, Amy, you were accountable for you and your life is up to you. What are you going to do about it? And I was like, do you know what I've been through? But that's the victim, right? And victims can't be 
resilient if they're not going to be accountable, if they're not going to be open-minded, if they're not going to let it go. Mm-hmm. And or learn hard. how to like move forward with it. Yeah. 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 I think there's an element of like when you have childhood trauma, cause I also have childhood trauma of like accepting that that's part of your story. Yeah. That's a um, hard one. Right. Instead of all the shame that comes with that and maybe the anger and the blaming other people for your problems and all of the things that you didn't do. Like at some time, at some point, I think you kind of have to rectify all of that. And that's, I'm not saying that's easy, (laughs) but I can remember that's part of it. Yeah. Well, in recovery, I was just so angry because I hadn't let that anger out and I was so angry. I was like, maybe if I hadn't had the childhood that I had, maybe if I didn't have the DNA from my parents, I wouldn't be this reckless love addict god you guys you know you did a really like crappy job of making a person but it's like Amy you're alive and you get to be on the planet girl (laughs) yeah and like you didn't ask for any of those things to happen to you any of those things to be part of your story but then you're left as an adult carrying those wounds right and they can impact us and influence us in in so many ways as you were saying like with the love and sex addiction it's interesting and I think it's probably really common and as I'm listening to you talk I can think of of people that I've known or that I've seen in relationships who were you know jealous and possessive and and clingy and all of those things and think like oh I mean I wonder if that's or like think back to like maybe your own behaviors when you were younger yeah like that's where I was going with it yeah (laughs) that too that too for sure and it's not it's not as tangible as like seeing an alcoholic or a drug addict or someone gambling yeah and so I think we don't recognize it but it's probably it's probably fairly common. You said that there are sex and love addicts anonymous meetings worldwide. Worldwide. Yep. 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 I could and... jump on a meeting in London, thank God, to Zoom or Australia, <laughs> uh, that type of thing. And and same with the codependence anonymous too. So there's some people that they'll be codependent, but they're not um, as uh, they're not, they, they, they might resonate a little bit with like sex and love addicts, but a lot of it doesn't apply. So there might be people that are, yeah codependent and but um it's just finding what program works for you so when I found codependence anonymous I was like oh I'm totally codependent I know that but then um when I when I read those characteristics that sex and love addicts anonymous I was like I am in the right place (laughs) I'm codependent but there's more to it there's more like yeah a a twist on that so to speak right so you're coming up on a year sober yeah that's yeah, amazing. it was around this time last year that I had my first meeting. Thank you so much. What is your life now? What What are you doing now? Yeah, recovery is uh, is amazing. There there were times when I had you know been in Codependence Anonymous and I was you know doing uh, goal goal oriented uh, things, but I look back, I'm like, man, I was in my addiction then. I didn't even know I was like it would be like a functioning alcoholic. I was a functioning love addict. But now mm-hmm. in recovery, I just feel alive again. I feel I feel my feelings. Uh, I'm not afraid of them. I feel like that vibrant, young, wondrous, curious little girl I was when I was five years old, before all the trauma happened, before all the the life happened. I have mm-hmm. a much better perspective on life. I'm not like, why is this just happening to me? Like, it, you know, it, it's that, that's life, Amy. Life happens on life's terms. And it happens to people. It's not because your higher power, uh, like the universe, is going, let's just ruffle Amy's feathers as much as we can this lifetime. I'm not being targeted. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I thought. I was like, oh, oh my God. And, and that's on, that victim mentality, right? Uh, but I have to say, depending on like what it is you're dealing with and what your trauma is, yeah. it can feel that way. And it can, especially in the throes of it when you're just like, this is just so like when, you know, making sense of the senseless and, and working with people over the years and seeing people losing people. And you're like, you know, I had a friend of mine that lost her brother and has, a, you know, left behind. a. She was two at the time. And you think, what, why? Why did cancer take? The, why him? Why? And that's mm-hmm. unfortunately, it's that's just how life goes sometimes. And it's 
trying to make sense of the senseless. And that's where I really flex my spiritual muscle when um, I have a higher power that I reference as God. And um, so I think when God um, removes people from our life, when God um, removes people from uh, the earth, um, I just try to think, you know, that that was someone that we had the privilege of meeting a living angel who was here for a short time, not a long time. And to remind us that they're here to send the message that, you know, we all we have is today and to live life in the present, to love fearlessly, have boundaries. Um, but to really uh, to really find what you need to do to get to uh, fulfillment. And I think this year has been a very hard year for people. It was like I said, when I went and I had my rock bottom in February 2020 and then a pandemic happened. I, mean, I was thinking that when you oh said my the God. date, I was you were like, like oh forced into like anorexia. Yeah, God was like, Amy, by golly, you need to learn to be alone. And at 38, you better master this crap, honey, or this is, you know. And I could like, that's my higher power is like talking to me, like, you know, a boisterous woman being like, girl, come on, learn to be alone, girl. That's one of the biggest problems with you. And I had to learn to be alone. And I remember all my life, I would run to my mom and be like, can I borrow money for first and last month's rent? Can I, can you co-sign this car? Can you, can you, can you? And, um, you know, I had to take money out of my kids, um, education savings to do first and last, but that's you know, that's part of recovery. You have to face accountability. Amy, when you were in your love addiction all those years, you didn't have any goals. You didn't have any direction. You just clung to men and you have, you know, you don't have a lot uh, for, to be able to do things for yourself. You have to build yourself back up like an alcoholic that, you know, drank away the, you know, lost the house, lost it all. You have to, Mm to rebuild. And so that was humbling. And that was, uh, and that was before coming to recovery. And then it was the, I think my kids, you know, they have been the best blessings to me. Um, you know, as hard as it's been being a single mother, I don't think I would, I, I can't, I can, I can couch surf and I probably would have been doing that, but there's no way I would put two kids through couch surfing if I, if I could prevent it, you know? So that was mm-hmm. my, thank God they're here because they're, you know, they, they're teaching me responsibility. And then the relationships and the sex and love addiction really taught me that um, life is about taking responsibility for yourself. Nobody is going to save you. Nobody is going to make sure your goals happen. Nobody's going to rescue you. you. The best thing that you can do to find fulfillment is learn how to um, take care of yourself so that when you share with someone, I don't need them. I'm not clinging to them. Nobody's rescuing me. And I'm not attracting needy people that I can rescue them because I got my highs up of rescuing people too. Yeah. Just as you were talking about that, you know, doing things for yourself and being accountable to yourself and being sort of independent and doing those things for yourself without relying on other people. I think also at the same time is building your own self-esteem to where, as you said, now it's, you're in a situation where you don't necessarily need a relationship to fulfill those things because you're fulfilling them for yourself. Yeah. And I know on your website, I think you talk a bit about like self-love and I was just wondering, are those the things that you sort of do in terms of like developing that self-love is that part of that process? Yeah. And the wonderful thing about uh, recovery too, is that we have uh, top line behaviors. So we've got our bottom lines, which is things we don't want to break. We've got our midlines, which is like, Ooh, you're going down the rabbit hole. You got to be careful. Then we have our top line behaviors. So when, when Amy is rocking recovery, when she's loving herself, when she's not in her attic brain, uh, what's Amy doing? She's drinking water. She's going to the gym. She's present. She's not being afraid of the future. She's not regretting the past. She's actually in this moment because there were many years, like the kids talk about um, memories. And I'm like, I can't remember that for the life of me because I was in my attic brain. I was in my attic mode. And uh, that those memories, um, I don't have memories sometimes of that because it was just a very stressful time. Mm-hmm. So to be present, that I'm just in this moment today. For me, it's um, playing hockey. I remember when I was 29, so 10 years ago, I was like, I'm going to learn to play hockey because I always believed I had the ability in me. I just never got the opportunity as a kid. And by golly, uh, I haven't uh, 
I haven't stopped. So those top line behaviors and really choosing to love yourself first. I remember hearing that saying, um, you know, you need to love yourself first. And then what I would do when I would be laying depressed in bed and just self-loathing, self-loathing was very addictive and just being like, I need to get out of bed and shower. And I was like, oh my God, that's so much work. But then I would say to myself, well, what would a self-loving woman do? What would she do? She would get up and she would shower. And I would have days in recovery too, where I'm like, oh, I don't want to face responsibility. Well, what would, what would a self-loving woman do? Well, she would get a coffee and she'd get in the car and get to work and push through, Aim, you can do this. Mm-hmm. And so it's, re- it, those are the top lines. Those are the loving myself. And I remember uh, doing a, um, a couple um, groups uh, one time doing a seminar. And one of the guys in the group said, you know, I think the best people for relationships are the people that are like, they're happy if they're in them, but they're also happy if they're not in them. And I was like, wow, that guy was like in his twenties. And I was like, that guy's got it figured out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I like that, that question that what would a self-loving woman do just in terms of just sort of centering yourself and, and almost you're almost removing it from yourself, right? Like, it's not like, what should I do? It's like, well, what would a self-loving woman do? Because that's what you're aiming to be. Yeah. What yeah. would the person that I want to be do? Yeah. do? Yeah. And it's kind of like, you hear a lot when it comes to like different, but like goal setting and manifesting, you like put your like lofty goals out there and then you reverse engineer them. Yes. And so it's yes. the same kind of idea, right? Yes. Um, and having the self-love that I'm worthy of that and I'm worthy of good things in life and I'm worthy of these big audacious goals and to say them out loud, I'm worthy of it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to ask you as a parent and as someone who struggles with self, like who has struggled with her own self-love journey, what what are some things that you, you know, are doing sort of as a parent to teach kids that self-love? Um, one of the things that we really value in our household is um, being open and um, everybody mm-hmm. is allowed to say what they need. So we have boundaries. Everybody's treated in, with respect. We're allowed to say what's truly in our hearts and minds. And, um, when we do that, then we can be, we can be vulnerable and we can be authentic. I really value authenticity. And Mm -hmm. from the adverse uh, experiences I had as a child, I really learned that I really want my kids to know that they're loved, that they're mad, they matter. I want my kids to be seen and heard. I want my kids to be validated, acknowledged. Um, I learned, uh, what emotional abuse was. And when I learned what emotional abuse was, I learned that I was doing it to my kids when I was being highly critical of my kids, when I was judging, um, Mm -hmm. when I was taking my stress out on them uh, through learning um, emotional abuse. And, you know, I teach it in workshops. Just becoming more aware of myself has made me a better person because the more aware I can become of myself, the better I can be at seeking to understand. And when I learned that healthy love is seeking to understand, then I learned that parenting isn't do this, do that, or you're going to end up like this. Parenting is I'm trying to have a relationship with you. I'm the leader Mm. here, Um, but I'm also seeking to, uh, to understand you. So when my kids are acting a certain way, my, my intention, my, my instant thought isn't like punishment, punishment. My thought is what's happening? Help me mm-hmm. understand you. What, what am I missing? Where's the disconnect? And mm-hmm. so that we can become uh, connected and that we're all, we're all unique. We're all irreplaceable. You know, we're all children of the universe. You know, we're, we're made who, how we are. My, my son, there's things we love about him. There's things that we're like, Oh, it is so annoying. Same with my daughter. <laughs> and same with me, same with me. And Every the, person on this we're human, right? Yeah. yeah. And we can laugh about it because we've created an environment where it's safe to be seen. It's safe to be heard. You're not going to be disrespectful. If you have um, hiccups, you know, um, sometimes, you know, my son does that. Um, Then, you know, you come back and you put your tail between your legs. You come back to the table and say, I'm sorry about the things I said when I was in anger, when I was in fear. 
when I felt that you guys were judging me. I'm sorry about the way I reacted. And then I think mm-hmm. from my own recovery, it's just really helped my parenting. I really want my kids to know that they're loved. And, and asking my kids as a parent, how do you guys know that you're loved? And seeing what they say. And they're like, well, because you just you love us for who we are. And I'm like, okay. All right. Yeah. I'm doing yeah. something right. Yeah, not. <laughs> we talk a lot about our emotions here. Oh, amazing! At our house, and I, I love that. I'm sorry what I said, like what I said, out of anger or whatever. Like that's a great, that's a great way to put it. We, we, when they were little, I'd always we'd say things like, you know, my anger got too big or my sad got too big or whatever. That's and they're good. a little bit older now, and and um you know, we have, I don't even know how we, we speak about that, but I like, I like really owning that it's, I was angry and that's why I did that. And that doesn't make it, make it okay. Yeah. Um, and then they see you, the leader mom owning that mom's not perfect. Oh my gosh. That's so I They see that kids. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I think that there are a lot of, you know, people, parents, whatever, who, acted of anger, but then don't really address it and say it in that way. So yes, Jen, you're right. Like maybe we see, they see that their children, their parents aren't perfect, but modeling that, um, that you can be accountable for your behavior, modeling that you're accepting when you've done something wrong, instead of just being like, I was mad and you deserved that. Yeah. Yeah. Or right. Like don't leave the milk out like that and don't spill it. And then like having a bad day, God, you guys. No, it was just like, I, it was a, it was a nicer, like, cause, cause in our own way here, we do that, but it was yeah. a, like the way you put it. I really like the way you put it there. Yeah. And it's like, um, we have those moments to be like, oh, okay. And I remember hearing, um, I think it was from a course in miracles. You're never really angry at what you think you're angry at. And yeah. so I was never angry at that. You left the milk down on the counter and I'm having the worst day of my life. And that's why I spilled it. And, you know, can you just, can you guys like, just be more like, can you guys be clean? Thank you. <laughs> what I'm really mad at, what I was really mad at underneath that is I had given myself over, I had let someone cross my boundaries again. I had lost myself for love again. I had, mm-hmm. um, I had lost myself again. That's what the real issue was going underneath that. And I wasn't processing my feelings. And so now my kids are the most irritating things on earth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is easy. That They're easy. They're an easy scapegoat. Yep. Yep. And my mom was a great one too. Yep. My mom was the, Mm -hmm. oh, my mom, you know, I was a little bit curious about like how you repaired that relationship. I, uh, inner child therapy, I can't speak highly enough of it. Um, I believe it falls under like psychotherapy. So it's inner child where it's like, you know, oh, okay, what did little Amy need? What did what little Amy didn't get? And just really reparenting myself and then just really Mm. letting the anger out, like letting the anger out and then making a decision to be done with it. And I would decide to be done with it and I'd be doing good, but then I hadn't fully accepted. It's like grieving. I'm grieving a loss of the dream of the relationship I wanted with you and you're still alive and you're... I'm not going to get that relationship on my terms with you. So in order to have you in my life, because I love you and I want to have you in my life, mm-hmm. um, I have to find out how I am going to accept that um, you, there's, this is how you're going to be my mom. And I focus on the good things about you. So I could focus on the negative things about my mom, or I could focus on the good things about my mom, mm-hmm. be laugh and play cards. Um, she has let me move back every time without question that woman, you know, for as angry and abusive as I was to her at times too, she would just, you know, yep, no, come on home. She wouldn't even hesitate. She would just be like, yeah, you're in crisis, come home. Mm -hmm. And just, I think seeing the hurt little girl that she is too, that she was once a wonderful, innocent, curious little child. And a lot of trauma happened to her too. And her Mm -hmm. wondrous, curious little girl inside got shut down. And if we could just see the child behind the person, then we would be like, oh, oh, it's okay. We would treat them so much differently. So if we could see the wounded, yes. wounded child in her, which I, which I came to terms with and accepted. And the other hard part was accepting that um, this go around, um, she's probably not going to do the work on her trauma. And that's none of my business. That's, that's her, her <laughs> life. So what I can do is I can learn how to love her as as she is and um and I'm so grateful I had that opportunity that while she's still here 
that I can I can learn to love her that way. And she can she and she's gonna put up with me too. So hats <laughs> off to her. <laughs> yes. That is a she is a patient woman. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us and all your wisdom and really teaching us, I guess, yeah. because I didn't really know that much about it, honestly. It's it's been such a treat. Oh, <laughs> yes. I thank you so much. You. It's so cathartic and healing to share because hopefully someone else out there will go, "Oh, okay, I'm not crazy too." Oh, yeah. okay. And yeah. what you guys are doing to help help the world and give back is is amazing and I'm just so honored to be here. Oh, thank yeah. you. We hope lots and lots okay. of people are listening. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Now What? If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. Until next time, remember, your hard times are the chance to write another chapter.